Well, good morning, everybody. It's uh, great to be with you. It's good to see you guys. We have been um, in a series called Origins. We are in week 11 of that series. We're going through the book of Genesis together. So uh, if you want to follow along, it's easy to find. You just start at the beginning, flip a few pages. We're going to start in chapter 6 today. Before we get there, uh, what we're doing, just to orient us again, is we're, we're looking at uh, the story that we've been given as Christians, which turns out to be Israel's story. And we're, we're trying to discern how do we live today based on where we come from and who we are and how our story begins. We're, we're not just doing it on Sunday mornings too, we're doing it on Wednesday nights. So if you're free on Wednesdays at 8, come join us on Zoom because we're diving deeper into the topics, we're asking questions, we're working through all kinds of things. It's been a real joy to do that together. But here's what we're doing in this series. We're looking at uh, the book of Genesis with two lenses. And we're holding these lenses sort of in tension with one another to see what, what appears to us that maybe might have been invisible before. One of those lenses is Israel's ancient neighbors. So we've, we've discussed this uh, a few times, but Israel isn't just on an island, but they live among other peoples who have other stories other heritages, other ideologies that, that inform the way they think about the world and the way they see God. Uh, I was asked the question last week because we were talking about some of these different narratives and the gods behind them. And someone goes, who hadn't been here for a little while comes up to me and goes, I just want to make sure you, you believe there's like one God, right? I'm like, yes. Yes, I do. Okay, <laughs> we're, not, we're not talking about multiple gods as if they're, they're all... Um, real and sort of fighting for dominance, but these are narratives that point to uh, the, the deities that they believed in and how Israel comes along and tells different stories about um, the true God, the God that we believe is revealed most accurately, fully in Jesus Christ. So that's one lens. And we're also looking at the larger story of Israel's creation as God's people and their understandings of God and, and how their understandings subvert the predominant expectations. So the idea is if you, as you hold these two lenses up, we begin to see more clearly who God is and who we are as His people. That's what we've been trying to do. So last week, uh, if you remember, if you were here, if you, were, if you heard it online, we were, we were swept up in the flood. Yeah? Pun intended. Uh, and we saw that God, through the flood, was handing His creation over to the chaos that it had wrought upon the world. That The Genesis flood isn't so much a mirror of God's violence, but it's a mirror of our own violence. And how it leads to violence and, and more violence until creation itself is undone. He's been holding back the waters of this dam and He takes His hands away, which results in the flood. This week we're going to continue the story and we're going to look specifically at the ark and the person of Noah and what that signifies both to Israel as well as to us. Okay? You ready? Alright, we've got a lot of ground to cover because this is a big story. There's a lot of elements to it. I'm trying to give you the highlights and not get bogged down in too many of the weeds. So we're going to start in Genesis 6, verse 14, and then I will let you know as we kind of skip our way through uh, chapters 7 and 8. Genesis 6.14 God says this to Noah, So, make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch, with tar, inside and out. 
This is how you were to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door on the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. Noah did everything, verse 22, just as God commanded him. Uh, chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds. Every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind. Everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have, have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For forty days the flood kept coming on the earth, and the waters increased. They lifted the ark high above the earth. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the hundred and fifty days, the water had gone down. And the seventh day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the tenth month. And on the first day of the tenth month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Verse 13. By the first day of the, of the first month, Noah's six hundred and first year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply in the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out, together with his sons, and his wife, and his son's wives, and the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark, one kind after another. I think sometimes we struggle how to place this story in the way that we tend to think about stories. We don't know what kind of genre it is or what the point might be, and I think it helps to kind of understand, and we've been doing this throughout the series, some contrasting stories and how they help clear the picture for us of what Genesis is supposed to be communicating. I don't know about you, but I, I, I love stories. I love movies. And one of my favorite movies of all time is the movie Shawshank Redemption. Now, it's been out for 28 years. If you haven't seen it, I don't know what you've been waiting for, to be, to be honest. It's on Netflix. Thank you. Okay, so... Now you're going to know what happened before you, saw it, before you see it if you haven't seen it. I don't think I'm going to um, ruin too much, but it's the story of a, a banker, very skilled young banker named Andy Dufresne, 
And Andy is convicted of a murder that he doesn't commit, his wife's murder. He's sent to prison uh, for life. And in prison, he endures unjust treatment from guards and prisoners alike. It's a, a horrific experience for Andy. And ironically, the, the most wicked character that Andy comes into contact with throughout the story is the jail's warden, Warden Norton. And it seems at first like the warden takes a liking to Andy, sort of takes him under his wing, and Andy kind of gets the, the warden's favor. But it becomes clear that what uh, this good warden is really after is that he wants to profit off of Andy's skill and get rich. And so uh, there's this critical moment in the film where Warden Norton uh, is presented with evidence that could overturn Andy's conviction. But instead of bringing it to light, he buries it because this prisoner had become too valuable of a commodity to set free. And it seems like all hope is lost and justice is going to be done. The bad guy wins in the end. But in the end, Andy gets the last laugh. He uh, outsmarts the system, and he outwits the warden, and he escapes to live out the rest of his days in peace and rest. I'll leave the rest to you. You can watch Netflix tonight and see how he got out and what he did afterwards. It's one of those us-against-them stories of human perseverance. I mean, we love these stories. This is why I watch college basketball this time of year. And why I'm rooting for St. Peter's, who just got into the Sweet 16. I mean, half of you know nothing about this. But they were a 15 seed who beat a number two seed and then beat the, the team after them and, and is now in the next round. And everyone, you know, goes crazy because they weren't supposed to do that. But this, the, these young upstarts are, you know, turning the tables on all the big dogs. We love these kinds of stories. Now, what does this have to do uh, with the flood? More than you might think. Because uh, stories of human ingenuity in the face of dire odds, uh, well, they're as old as the Bible itself, and maybe older. In fact, one of these uh, stories is an ancient epic called Gilgamesh. Now, if you've never heard of this, I don't, like, it's okay. We're going to highlight different pieces of it. But it's a Mesopotamian uh, creation story. And it has different parts and elements to it, but it's considered by most scholars to be the oldest piece of human literature that exists. And it too has an element of it where it tells the story of a great flood. And it shares many of the similarities with Genesis that we highlighted last week with uh, the other one called the Atrahasis. But there are differences, major differences, between the story that's told in Gilgamesh and the story that's told in Genesis. So I'm going to highlight the differences. And then you, you tell me if you can discern what the message is, okay? Uh, so in Gilgamesh, there, there is a, a, a ship that is constructed in order to endure a great flood. But the, the building of this ship is incredibly difficult. It, it, it needs an, a, a huge crew of the most skilled people imaginable. And, and the only reason that it's built is because one of the gods in the pantheon leaks the news that a flood is coming to the humans. All the other gods are united in their displeasure of the human race. They want to wipe them out completely. And the central character of this flood is a guy named Utnapishtim. Try saying that five times fast. After he builds his ship, 
before the flood. He seals himself into the ark because he can't rely on the gods to do it for him. They want to drown him. <laughs> and Utna, I'm going to call him Utna from now on, he brings all the best craftsmen and skilled laborers from his village with him because he plans to start a great empire if he ever makes it out alive. And the ship, after the floodwaters come, it needs to be guided by skilled seafarers in order to avoid complete disaster. And after the flood subsides, the chief god, Enlil, he, well, he's furious when he finds out that the humans escaped annihilation. Do you remember the whole point of the flood in the ancient Near East? Not Israel, but its neighbors, was to silence those noisy humans so that they could finally get some rest. But in the end, Utna, well, he overcomes all the odds and he becomes a god himself because he outsmarted the god's plans and he proved himself worthy of immortality. All right, what's the picture that, that starts to form in your mind around the Gilgamesh flood? What story is it telling us? Don't trust those guys up there. They do not have your best interest in mind. And, and because of that, who can you rely on? Yourself and yourself alone. You are the only thing that you can rely on. You're on your own. Literally, heaven and earth are, are aligned against you. But if you're strong enough and you're clever enough, if you're a smart young banker like Andy Dufresne, you too can out, outwit the system. You too can make friends and influence people. You too can rise above the turmoil and find peace and rest for yourself that the gods want for them. See, it's, it's a story of human perseverance. It's a tale as old as time, as they say. And again, Israel, as a nation among these other neighbors, uh, they heard these stories. They heard these ideologies. They heard these assumptions about what life is about and what the gods are like. But instead of taking those stories at face value, instead of throwing their hands up and saying, well, I guess it really is up to us, they reinterpret and they subvert the messages that they heard through the filter of their own theology. They say, we've heard it said, but, but now we say. We have something new to say here. Based on who we know our God, Yahweh, to be like. Last week we showed how this worked out with the purpose of the reason that the flood happened in the first place. We read the flood and we hear about other uh, like flood narratives. And the, what's the first question that comes to our mind as modern people? When did it happen and which story is accurate? Right? Yeah, how long did it happen? When did it happen? Who was involved? Where did it occur? What are the details and which ones are accurate? Can I trust the Bible? And I think the, the whole framing is a tell on us. It's speaking more of our perspective and our assumptions and our questions and what they say about what we value than it is about what the text is trying to say to us. The point is that Noah's flood tells us a truer story about what God is like. See, Gilgamesh is a story of human perseverance in the face of unruly gods who want rest for themselves. But in the Genesis story, we have a God of heavenly deliverance. In our God, He doesn't want rest for Himself. He wants rest for His people. And so we proclaim the good news today. That the God who created the cosmos is the same God who rescues the hopeless, the desperate, the destitute. Our God is not 
meticulously planning our downfall. He is actively working for our deliverance. You are not left alone to navigate the turmoil of life. He's mindful of your troubles. He seals you for the day of salvation. He prepares a place of protection, deliverance, and rest for you through His ultimate rest giver, His faithful Son, Jesus Christ. Today, family, this God is birthing a new creation and a new people that can be part of that new creation. Where do you need the new creation to burst into the old today? So, Genesis is not Gilgamesh. That seems fairly obvious, right? Uh, It's not a story of self-preservation, but divine intervention. That's all fine and good, but it still leaves us with a major question, right? Which is, how would Israel have heard and understood Noah and the ark? What would they have heard when they heard this story? What significance did it have for them as a people? And then, as the people that this story is handed down to, what significance does it have for us? And, I, and here I think it's important to say this, that we shouldn't read Noah and the flood in isolation of the rest of Israel's story. We shouldn't read it in isolation. We should read it as part of a larger narrative of Israel's formation as a people and their understanding of God and how it's coming together. And so we have to pay attention to how this story echoes and reverberates the melody of other stories. You know what I'm talking about? Do you, ever, um, do you ever hear a song and you're like, man, I really love this song. And then you find out that like, the melody or the beat of that song was actually sampled from a song that was like 20 years ago. You're like, holy cow, I didn't realize like, that came from another song before. And now every time you hear the, the song that you love, you hear that song, but you hear the song that came before it too? No, just me? Okay. Alright, that's fine. <laughs> I think if we're good listeners, we'll hear the tune, not just of Noah and his ark, but of other stories in the Bible. And there's one I have in mind in particular. So, um, let me tell you not the story of Noah's ark, but the story of the Exodus. And see if something doesn't begin to, to pop out at you. Okay? I'm not smart enough to come up with all these. These are from John Walton. He has a book called The Lost World of the Flood. Really helpful book. But he points out these things. Uh, Noah's Ark is just one out of three objects in Scripture where God prescribes their exact design and dimensions. What What do you think the other two are? The temple and the tabernacle. Now, if you don't remember what the tabernacle is, that's okay. It is the tent where God chose to dwell among His people as they were carried through the wilderness from Egypt to the Promised Land. Right? That's where the people would gather around and they would stay in any given spot until the pillar of fire or the cloud of smoke uh, rose up from the tabernacle and moved and they saw it move and they would go, okay, it's time to pack up. And then they would pack up and they would go with God's presence and then they would settle wherever God said was safe to settle. And they did this again and again and again for 40 years until at last they get to the promised land. You, You remember the story? Noah's Ark just happens to be one of three objects along with the tabernacle that is prescribed exactly what its dimensions should be. The Ark too is divided into three levels. And uh, the tabernacle also has three, a threefold layout to it. 
Each level of the ark happen, just happens to be uh, the same height as the tabernacle and exactly three times the area of the tabernacle's courts. The ratio of the width to length of both the ark and the, and the tabernacle is three to five. There is a Hebrew word used for the tent that covered the tabernacle. It's called miksa. It was made out of animal skins. And the ark, too, is covered with a miksa covering. It's what Noah removes when it's time to come out of the ark. Noah's ark also has no instruments to guide it across the water. It doesn't take skilled seafarers to bring it from one place to another or to avoid damage. Uh, it's taken wherever the Lord deems it should go. Sounds a lot like the tabernacle, right? Which has no compass or map. It travels through hostile space wherever the Lord's presence moves it. And those who remain near the tent are given nourishment, community, and safety, while those who leave the camp of the tabernacle are lost to the wilderness, never to be heard from again. Finally, the tabernacle is traveling to a land that God says is chock full of olive trees. Deuteronomy 8, verse 7 and 9, Joshua 24, verse 13 mention this. And we didn't read it today, but what does the dove return with when it's sent out to find land? An olive branch. Some of you don't look convinced yet. That's okay. Here's the kicker Who was Israel's leader and mediator through the wilderness? Moses. He was the one who led them out of Egypt. He was the one who uh, communed with God, who brought back His law, who mediated God's presence all throughout the wilderness, who, who literally brings them from slavery to freedom. How does Moses' story begin? We have Moses' story from when he was an itty-bitty baby. How did his story begin? Moses' story begins when Egypt becomes a very hostile environment for the people of Israel. They've been living as a nation within a nation for 400 years, but now the waters are stirred up and there's tumultuousness. In fact, so bad that uh, there is an edict given that the firstborn son of every Israelite is to be killed. And one son escapes that fate. How does that one son escape the fate? by being placed by his mother into a basket and floated on a river to safety. The word used for Noah's ark is the Hebrew word teva. It only occurs one other time in the entire Hebrew Bible. Can you guess the other place it's located? The basket that carries Moses. In both the flood and the exodus, the tables and the tides are turned Two, when God remembers His people. Exodus 1, verse 1. The very first verb that's, that's ascribed to God is that God remembers. And the very first verb that God shows up in the flood to bring about safety for His ark travelers is also the word remember. If you're an ancient Israelite and you hear the story of the flood, what are you immediately thinking about? From, from the name of, the, of, the, of the, the instrument that carries Noah and his family to safety, to the strange dimensions, to the olive trees waiting at the end, this, all of this is singing a familiar tune for Israel. It is singing a song that says, this isn't just a story about a flood, it's a story about an exodus. 
This isn't just a story about a boat. It's a story about a basket and a temple and the presence of God. This isn't just about 40 days of rain. This is about 400 years of slavery. This isn't a story about vengeance and human perseverance. It's a story about deliverance and new creation. This isn't a story about killing off sinners. This is a story about the preservation of a community through the violent tumult so that together they can continue the narrative of God's faithfulness forward. Do you see it? Do you hear the tune? It's astounding. One of the things I'm noticing happening to me as we go through this series is I'm falling in love with the Bible more and more and more. I, I really hope that's happening for you too. It's incredible. It's incredible. When Israel heard the story of Noah, they would have also at the same time heard the story of Moses. Because that is their founding story. As the people that God redeemed and saved and delivered as He pushed back the waters so that they could walk through on dry ground. 1 Kings 8, uh, verse 56 and 57 are reflecting on the, the, the Exodus. And it says this, Praise be to the Lord who has given us rest who has given rest to His people Israel, just as He promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises He gave through His servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as He was with our ancestors. May He never leave us nor forsake us. They, they look back and they see the, the, their founder, Moses, and they connect it with the idea of Moses bringing them to a, a land of rest where they can finally escape the, the, the slavery that they had endured. Through Moses, God made good on His promises to give His people rest. You remember what Noah's name means? It's the Hebrew word for rest. There's so many connecting points. We're told that, that in this flood story, just as it was with the Exodus story, that God raises up an individual. He uses this, this person, this human, to, uh, to bring His people through trial. And that when you get close to this person, this, this mediator of salvation, you too find rest from the chaos that swirls and consumes the world. The deliverance of God's people, first with Noah, and then with the Israelites out of Egypt. It was by the same God that created the cosmos. And He did it by controlling the waters. The mighty God of creation is still present with His people in their hour of need. Friends, today, we proclaim the good news that the Creator is the Redeemer. The God who created the cosmos is the same God who rescues the hopeless, the destitute, the desperate. Our God is not meticulously planning our downfall. He is actively working for our deliverance. And you too are not left to navigate the turmoil of life alone. God is mindful of your troubles. He seals you for the day of salvation. He prepares a place. Protection, deliverance, and rest for you. Just as He's been doing throughout the entire story. But now He does it through His ultimate rest giver, His faithful Son, Jesus Christ. Today, friends, He is birthing new creation in and through His people. He's prepared us for this day. Where do we need new creation? Alright, so we've covered the flood. We've covered the exodus. And what that has to say to Israel. But what about us? <clears throat> well, it turns out that this pattern of, 
raising up a leader who goes through a flood or a trial only to be delivered at the end when all hope seems lost. And that the result of, of that person's deliverance is a community who gets to receive rest and new creation. Like that happens a lot. It's the beat that every song samples throughout the entire Bible. And if you hear it in Moses, it's because you hear it in Noah and vice versa. And if you hear it later in the story, it's because it, that, that song began at the very beginning. Now, can you think of anybody else in the Bible that God raises up to lead His people only to endure incredible hardship and certain death and yet is given as a, as, as a reward for that process, new life, who then gives that new life away to a community that can live in rest and communion with God and each other. Anybody come to mind? Of course it's Jesus. Jesus the ultimate Moses. Jesus the final Noah. Jesus the one who, who comes into human time and history at a moment when things were at their worst. When God's people were abused and oppressed, not by a flood or by the Babylonians, but now by the Romans, the, the most powerful empire to ever come and grace the face of earth. And this, uh, this Messiah, this anointed one, is risen up in their midst, one among them, and he begins to proclaim a new creation, a new kingdom that's available, accessible to everyone. And what happens to him? He's outcasted, tortured, and ultimately killed. And the Scriptures foretold that this was going to happen to him. But friends, we're, we're getting on towards Easter, right? And what does Easter tell us? That this human who is God in the flesh did not stay in the ground. He did not become overcome with the flood. He did not perish in Egypt. But he is rescued from his slumber. He's risen again anew. And he comes to his disciples and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. I am making a new creation. And you get to be a part of it. I'm gathering a people to myself. I'm giving birth to a new nation. See, friends, this is our song too. This is why 1 Peter 2 says it this way. Not just to Israel, but to all the people who now are connected to this person of Jesus Christ through Israel's story that is now spreading out to every nation across the earth. He says to all these people that are dispersed across the land, you too are God's chosen people. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. This is Exodus language. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The flood, the slavery in Egypt, the barrenness of the wilderness, the cross and the empty tomb, all of these events in, in Israel's history and, and as it turns out, our history, they give birth to a community that is bound together with a common story and a common heritage. We are given a shared identity as the people that God delivers. And because of that, we have a shared future and hope and promise. This is what Peter is inviting us to see. That the same God who created the cosmos is the one who rescues the hopeless, the desperate, 
and gives deliverance to His people. The Creator is the Redeemer. So we are not left alone to navigate the turmoil of life. God is mindful of our troubles. He knows what we've been through. He's prepared in advance a place of rest, protection, deliverance through His Son, His faithful Son, Jesus Christ. We are the inheritors of a new creation. Which means today, yes, that's coming ultimately. We know that in the future. But Paul too says that we are a new creation now. We get a deposit of that new creation today. And so where do you need that? Where do you need the the new creation to burst into the old, old? What feels like tumultuousness and desperation and death? What feels like an end that may actually be the beginning of something new? Maybe there's something that you're thinking of individually, personally. I'm also thinking corporately. I think about the fact that we just marked the two-year anniversary of a pandemic. As either last week or this week was the first Sunday that we were on Zoom two years ago. And none of us would have guessed that two years later we would just now, maybe, we don't know what the future holds, be, be coming out of some of what we've endured these last two years. And as I think about that, I, th- I, th- I feel like we exit this experience different than, than we entered it. We're different people than when we went in. And yet, by God's grace, um, for the most part, God sealed us in and protected us through the storms. Close to one million people in our country that don't have that experience, and we lament that loss. But I, I know for myself, like I stand here two years later, and I'm different, like I'm a different person than I was two years ago. I'm more in touch with my frailty. I'm more honest about my weaknesses. I realize that most of what I'm given in life is a gift of grace, not something that I can manufacture, like through my own effort and skill. I marvel that we're sitting here today in the same building two years later because that was not assured us to, to be here today. So I guess I, like, I'm reflecting both on like, how I've changed, we've changed through this experience, but at the same time, like, the fact that God has been faithful. And it, it does a couple things in me, and this is what I want to invite you to as we respond. It's important on the one hand, I think, to name the ways that we've changed, good and bad. Like, I, I, there's a positive aspect of being more in touch with your frailty, But there's also this honesty of like, I'm exhausted most of the time. (laughs) And I can be honest about that with you and with God. It's okay. Like social interaction takes more effort than ever. It's okay. It's harder to do things that that were easy for us before. It's okay to admit that. So I think on the one hand, there's this like naming where you are. And this is what I want to invite us to as we respond. All of us have been through an experience. So we're honest about it. We, we set that before God. We say, you, you have done something in the world and something has happened to me and I, you see it. You remember me in it. You haven't forgotten me. I'm not lost to you. So here it is. Like You see it. I see it. And, and together we, we lament it. We process our grief and our stress and our anxiety together. Us and God. God wants to do that for you today. But then on the other hand, don't stay in that condition, but we, 
we ask the Lord, what does the new creation look like? What is the new that is bursting into the old, the unexpected, the, the, the not planned for, the olive branch that's a, a foretaste maybe of something to come? I don't have it yet, but there's a dream that it might come. I think as a community, we, we, just, we happen to find ourselves in this kind of moment. We've been through an experience, we're looking at the future, and we're asking God, I think we should ask God, what does new creation look like for Cultivate in 2022? I don't have that answer for you. But the good news for me, at least, is I don't think Noah or Moses had it either. But they could put their trust in the one that did. So this is what I want to invite us to as we close um, and respond. Let's pray.